electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, call it the everywhere rally. If you think stocks here are doing well, and they are, try looking overseas. We'll show you the top five countries minting money, targeting Elon Musk, an FCC commissioner making a bombshell claim against the Biden administration. That commissioner joins us. Speaking of Musk, Tesla recalling millions of cars over its autopilot feature. Should it give investors pause? A Pfizer fail. Shares the pharma giant now below their pandemic panic lows. We're going to dive into how things have gotten so wrong. Plus, Barbara Corcoran, unfiltered. The real estate legend is urgent advice for people sitting out in the housing market. You're going to hear what that is. And goodbye, downtown. Hello, suburbs. It is the shakeup that could change the D.C. sports scene forever. All that and more over the next hour. So belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon at West, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. We have a big show for you tonight. And first up on last call, the words that sent the record, the Dow, to a record high. The question of when will it become, become appropriate to begin dialing back the amount of policy restraint in place, that, that begins to come into view uh, and is clearly a discussion, topic of discussion out in the world and, and also a discussion for us uh, at, at our meeting today. Now, in plain English, Fed Chair Jay Powell saying the Federal Reserve could soon cut rates effectively. And that had Wall Street in party mode. The Dow surging above 37,000 for the first time to close at a record high. The S&P 500 also popping more than a percent to a new 52-week high. It is just 2% from a record close. The Nasdaq, the highest close since January of 21. And even the Mighty Mites kicking in with small caps up nearly 4% today. Powell's words also having a big impact on the bond market. The 10-year yield fell to nearly 4%. It's 4.01 right now, the lowest in four months. That means mortgage rates, by the way, are going to come down as well. Billionaire investor Jeffrey Gunlock says those rates could go even lower. I would uh, guess that we will see the 10-year Treasury yield in the low threes sometime next year. And that would be consistent, in my view, only with the Fed cutting more like, I don't know, 200 basis points or even more uh, next year. That could be good news, by the way, for home buyers. Well, today's rally was led by rate sensitive sectors. OK, you got the banks. Look at that. Bank of America, City, Wells Fargo. They all rose two, three, four percent. And maybe the most rate sensitive group of all, which is real estate, residential and commercial, rocketing major commercial real estate REITs going through the roof. Gold also rising today. It is just below its record. You can really best summarize today's Wall Street rally with this song. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when we're part of the team. Everything is awesome. Hey, it's the holidays. The market is rallying. We're allowed to have some fun. I mean, look, 
we got our screen, our in-house screen printers to come up with this really snazzy hat that's easily adjustable. All right, that aside, there is serious questions here, like what to do now, what to do next year, what to do for the next five years. Let's talk to one of the most highly rated wealth managers in the world, and we promise this will not cost you a dime. Joining us now is Peter Malouk, CEO and president of wealth management firm Creative Planning, with almost $250 billion under management, also the author of the book, Money Simplified. But what you don't have, despite being frequently the number one ranked guy in America, you don't have this hat, Peter. I don't. I, I need one. I need. I owe you a barbecue lunch because last time I was on, you took the Lions, I took the Chiefs. Uh, but when you come, I'll take one of those hats. Yeah, I'll, I'll swap it out, the hat for some Kansas City barbecue. Uh, listen, I'm sure your phone is ringing in a very good way, not the panic way of COVID. Never. What do I do? What do I sell? Now people are happy. They're probably looking to chase some things. What are your best pieces of advice right now, Peter? Well, I think it's really interesting because if you look at it on its face, you know, Powell said, OK, we're going to we see that inflation's decelerating when we all said, well, we know that and I'm not going to raise rates in the market. 98% chance expected that. Everyone knew that. But for him to say, and I'm going to, I expect to take rates down three times next year. No one expected that. So on the one hand, the market's very excited. You see risk on assets doing the best. That's what we what we would uh, expect to do the best. Small cap stocks, something we've been recommending for a little while, anticipating this, though not this quickly and this vocally, um, I think is the place to be. But I, I do think there's a message behind his message, which is, what is it that he knows that everyone else doesn't seem to know? I mean, I think that it appears, looking at all the data, that the, the landing is relatively soft. And he took the extra step today of feeling the need to say out loud, I am going to lower rates several times next year. And I think that's really what took the markets uh, by surprise. And as you said, we expect lower mortgage rates. You expect risk on assets to do better. Um, but it's still, to me, there's a message behind the message that maybe he thinks he had to say that to prevent uh, a little bumpier landing. What, but I, I guess color me a little bit confused, Peter, because if I'm out there and in America and I'm not a financial pro, I'm thinking, wait a minute. This year we started talking about recession. Of course, that didn't happen. The opposite occurred. Rates were on the rise and the stock market took off. So now we're talking about a potential economic slowdown, rates being cut and the stock market may take off. I know. We're, we're in a good news is bad news. Bad news is good news. Good news uh, is good news. And yeah. <laughs> what is bad news? Bad news. <laughs> I, I will say we have a knee-jerk reaction to the rate, to the rate announcements. Any surprise that happens either either way. And you you can't uh, look at expected three uh, rate rate cuts and not feel like the, the what's unique here is this a mission accomplished flag has been planted. Basically, so look, we had to lower rates really fast because we were worried the world was going to end. We had to raise rates really fast because we thought inflation was going to get out of control and the world was going to end. And you know what? We did it. And so we think we've solved the problem. We think we've created that first perfectly soft landing from the biggest whipsaw on rates we've ever seen in such a short period of time. And if anything, we think we might have overdone it a little bit and we're going to come down. And so I think that that is hard not to be positive about. And and they've got a loaded gun. You know, if they're wrong, very easy to solve. Uh, they can go, you know, go the other way with rates. Yeah, what's the risk? There's always risk. What, what, the risk this year, I think, was the Fed would overshoot too far on the upside and sort of kneecap the economy. Now yeah. what's the risk? 
Well, you know, I think it's interesting because to have the Fed be such a big player showed how far off base they were to begin with. If it, The Fed should not be the headline. The fact that they had to lower rates so much and, and really overdid it, and then because of that, they had to raise them so much. They were really driving everything. What's happening with, with M&A, what's happening in markets, what was happening with bonds, what was happening with banks, what was happening with mortgages, all has to do with, with the Fed. I think now, you know, a little bit up, a little bit down, they're not going to be the headline anymore. You know, God forbid we're going to have to talk about things like earnings or other threats that are that are happening or whatever is going on in the world, whether it's Ukraine or the Middle East or what's going to happen with oil or, or cybersecurity yeah. or whatever. The normal ex existential threats to the market are there. We can focus more on earnings. But this idea that rates might move 300 basis points in the next 18 months, that's... Yeah probably behind us. You know, for some reason, when I go out, friends and family and random people in airports will ask me where the stock market's going. And I say, don't talk to me, talk to Peter Malouk. But if I do give them an answer, they say, what's the biggest risk? And I've been saying that the market was too narrow, that there's too few stocks powering the whole thing. And at some point you get to stretch valuations and it's getting ridiculous. I love the move in small caps, not just today, but recently. And I wonder for 2024, uh, could a prediction be that that the rest of the market, the small caps, outperform, dare I say, the magnificent seven? The, the issue is you just never know when. The stock market itself hits an all-time high about once every 19 days. It's been almost two years before we were able to celebrate that again. But the other thing that's been happening in the background, to your point, is the magnificent seven has carried everything. If you pull them out of the S&P 500, mediocre returns, and the rest of the markets around the world – have not done well, including U.S. small cap stocks. But the gap between U.S. small cap and U.S. large cap is rarely in history as significant as it is now. That gap is going to close. The question is when. I think now we have a, a good recipe for it. That doesn't mean it's going to happen, but conditions look better now than they have in a long time. I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting tweets, and I love it. And I don't know if they're jokes, but you know, people are starting to put the rocket emoji, you know, to the moon. These kinds of things back in my Twitter yeah. feed. And maybe that's the biggest risk. This ir irrational exuberance and people just buying stocks because they're going up. I mean, we came out of an insane risk on world where everyone, you know, people weren't even coming to work because they were at home making money, trading meme stocks and cryptocurrencies and everything else. I don't think we're going back to that world. Um, but it is true. When the market hits an all-time high, usually the norm is it keeps going and, and keeps hitting all-time highs. But yeah. I would I would caution that this is not something that anyone should go all in on or go totally risk on. What what this is really is is a celebration for the long-term investor who got through the last couple of years doing the right thing, rebalancing into the weakness, buying into the weakness. Uh, they win again, right? And the speculators got crushed in all this. The the people that were doing the meme stocks and the crypto got crushed on the front end. And the people that were shorting the market recently, which are very high profile, got crushed on on the back end. That's it. And uh, but they do not have this snazzy hat. And I look forward to uh, swapping this out someday for a lunch in Kansas Fair City. Deal. Peter Malouk, really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Good to see you. All right. So there you go. We gave you the macro markets, but let's take a look inside the S&P, your stud and dud of the day. And they're kind of related. The big the big winner was Vertex Pharma up 13.2 percent. They had promising study results for a pain medication. The big decliner, Pfizer, down nearly 7 percent. Ouch. We're going to have more on Pfizer's mighty fall later in the hour. All right, let's get a quick check on futures. Don't normally like to look at them. Not a lot of volume, but guess what? A little more action right now, and they are all up, indicating we could have another up market day as well. All right. 
We're not done here, though. And up next, why a 2 million vehicle recall didn't shake shares of Tesla at all. Later, an FCC commissioner's shocking claim saying the White House may be deliberately harassing Elon Musk and his companies. That commissioner will be here. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Last Call. If you are just joining us, it has been a record day for stocks and hopefully for your money. The Dow shoving to an all-time high. The S&P 500 above 4,700 points, just a stone's throw away from its 2021 record. And the Nasdaq closing at its highest level since January of 2022. Now, all the indexes, they were up, but they really spiked around 2 p.m. after the Fed signaled potentially three interest rate cuts could come next year. That set bond yields tumbling. The 10-year, probably tomorrow, going to go back under 4%. And that move, as we just kind of talked about, helped what we call the Bobby Brady stocks, the small caps. The Russell 2000 shooting up more than 3%, climbing right into the close. All right, meantime, let's get to tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories that you and Wall Street will be talking about tomorrow morning. Adobe reporting fourth quarter results. Now, they did top expectations, but longer term, Things are maybe not looking as positive for Adobe. Software company offering weaker than expected guidance heading into next year, citing macroeconomic headwinds. Hmm. The forecast sending shares down after hours are off just under 5%. In the meantime, Tesla is adjusting its autopilot and auto steer software. This after federal regulators from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration found its features are able to be easily misused. Tesla does not agree with those findings. But it will, quote, recall more than 2 million cars. Now, that's pretty much every car a Tesla has ever built. But there is a big but here. This is not a traditional recall where you drive your car back to the dealer, leave it there, they can fix something. This will be fixed with a relatively simple software update, kind of like when you update your iPhone software to fix a small problem. So the news did not hit Tesla at all. But some of the headlines out there, Honestly, got it kind of wrong. So maybe it makes it worth discussing more. Joining us now is Gerber Kawasaki, President and CEO, Ross Gerber. And I'm not uh, throwing water on any competitors or anybody else in the media, but when I, I think for most consumers, when they see the word recall, they assume something more serious than a software update. Yeah, and I and I think it's time we maybe update the language at the NTSB after maybe a yeah. hundred years. You know, yeah. so your horse really has been just, recalled because his hoof it, fell. I mean, right, right. We've got a hoof problem here, and so like to me, it should be just be called what you called it—an update. 
It's a mandatory update. That's what it is. What I think the real issue is, and 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 just to be straight, you know, Tesla was down five or six points, and and it rallied because the market rallied, and it did help Tesla get out of the the you know red today. But but the stock was down, and if it weren't for the Fed, it would have stayed down. Because what I'm concerned about is the you know continued assault on this software, and the more safe they try to make it the harder it is to develop it and the less people will be using it. And it just holds back the technology. I use it all the time and it has a lot of safety features in it. But so I just, I I do also, to to be fair, I'll flip it back the other way, Ross, which is to be clear, what they're talking about is the auto steer feature may not work as advertised. I mean, these are serious things like hands on the wheel, right? You know, don't fall asleep while the cars in the New Jersey turnpike kind of stuff. But it also apparently can be fixed fairly easily. I think you're exactly right about they've got to figure out a way, especially as as EVs get more prolific and they just become rolling computers to update the language so that consumers and investors truly understand what's happening. It's not like you bring my BMW in because the brakes are going to fall off. Right. But like at, at, at Porsche, when they, you know, have to do a software update, you have to actually take your car in. So, so it's not a standard in the industry to have over-the-air updates, although several of the companies have that, most don't. So, you know, it is unique to Tesla that they're able to solve problems so simply. But I do think it is very misleading when media runs headlines like 2 million cars being recalled. It certainly infers that there's a negative financial impact to this, and there isn't. So I, I, I think most stock owners of Tesla know this, but I still think that it's an issue. Yeah, because you, you might, well, you might have somebody at home thinking about getting a Tesla and they go, oh, you know what, honey? I, I You're just, right. Uh, they just announced a now, huge granted, recall. I'm going to go look at the Audi gr- e-tron. Granted, the media must call Tesla for comment, as you guys do every time. And what does Tesla say? Nothing. So they why don't have a would PR the headlines- to, They don't have a media communications department. Right. right. So why would There's the headlines no be correct? How would the headlines be correct if they don't correct them? So then you have me on TV and we try to get the right information out to consumers and to viewers and to investors, but Tesla doesn't do this. So why? Yeah. Well, you know what? You're Hold on. We're going to go in a second, but, but this, you're making kind of an interesting point that a lot of our viewers probably and Tesla investors don't get. Musk does things his own way. They don't have an internal PR department. And whatever you think about that, right. I can tell you this much. If I went on TV and I said something incorrect about Ford, okay, their team is on it. They watch this show, they watch this network, they follow tweets, and they're very good. And I mean that as a compliment. They will contact me and be like, Brian, what you said was not accurate. And then if we figure it out, I'll go on and say what I said was not accurate. There's no one doing that at Tesla. Right. I've had that happen from spots I've done where I've talked about a company and some of the things I said weren't 100 percent accurate. And the company reached out to me and was like, well, it's not quite exactly what we did here. And I was like, wow, thank you so much. I didn't mean, you know, like I'm trying to get it right. You yeah. know, so they're the only company in America that functions this way. And so what I say to Tesla back as an owner, how is it OK that every day the headlines are misleading about what's happening at your company, but you don't make any effort to, like, fix the problem. Well, it's a good question. And maybe soon on LinkedIn, we'll see, like, uh, open head of comms position, Tesla Motors. We'll find right. out. Or how about a, a chief marketing officer, CF, CMO, we, we will find which is out. common at every company. Ross Gerber. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, still ahead. How low 
can it go? Pfizer digging itself into a deeper hole, but how have things gotten this far? Some answers, maybe, next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. It was quite a rough day. It's been a rough run for Pfizer and its investors. The stock tanking again after it cut all kinds of guidance. It even expects sales of its COVID treatment Paxlovid to fall 90, 90% from last year. What a fall it's been from the COVID highs. Pfizer soaring, of course, on the vaccine, which at the time gave us major hope to get out of the pandemic. The government bought billions of dollars worth of the shot. But now... Pfizer has not only wiped out those gains, the stock is actually lower than even the peak COVID panic period of March 2020, when pretty much every stock collapsed. Pfizer's decline taking a toll on its overall value. Pfizer now worth less than $150 billion. That may sound like a lot, but Eli Lilly is worth $550 billion. Novo Nordisk, $450 billion. Merck, $440 billion. So what exactly is going on? Well, here's what billionaire investor Ken Langone had to say about the company earlier on CNBC. It's a big hole to fill. You know, we haven't got the crisis we had. We haven't got the demand we that they had then. On the other hand, you know, Pfizer is an amalgamation of a lot of drug companies. Think of who's in there. Upjohn, Pharmacia, Wendell Lambert. Uh, there's about seven or eight of them in there. And, and frankly, I think they never really got their arms around consolidation at levels like research, for example. I feel bad for 20 years ago, Pfizer was presumed to be the company in the healthcare industry. There you go. A one man's opinion. By the way, we just kind of talked about this. Pfizer, they do have a great PR team, so they will no doubt see or hear this segment either live or tomorrow morning or tonight. And just want to let you know the CEO is always welcome on last call. All right. Now, at the same time, on the topic of covid and sickness, you might have noticed that pretty much everybody seems to either be sick right now, has a cold, just got over a cold or knows somebody who has a cold. There are a lot of nasty things going around. People coughing for weeks or months. And, of course, one of those viruses going around is indeed COVID. COVID rates are popping again in many areas. And some people are worried about getting hit with multiple bugs at once. So what is actually the view from the ground? Let us ask a practicing ER doctor, Dr. Michael Daniel from Providence St. Joseph's Hospital in Los Angeles. A gentleman, a doctor who is gracious enough to be on TV at 2 in the morning L.A. time when I was doing the morning show, so doctor, it's great to have you back on. I wish it was under sort of different circumstances. What are you seeing in your ER? How many nasty things are going around at the same time? Hey, Brian, it's good to be back on here. Great to see you on your new show. 
So it's kind of a mixed bag in the ER right now and across the country. There's high rates of RSV, there's flu, there's COVID, as you mentioned, and there's many other common cold viruses that we just pay more attention to now in the era of COVID. And the other thing that was of concern is that there's rising numbers of mycoplasma pneumonia. So we saw that in northern China, it was affecting a lot of children in their hospitals. And then we started seeing cases of mycoplasma affecting children in Ohio and Massachusetts and some states here. So just want to assure the viewers, this is not a new virus. Uh, mycoplasma pneumonia is what we call walking pneumonia because you walk out of the ER with some antibiotic treatment. And so unfortunately, a lot of antibiotic resistance to z packs is driving that. And we're just having higher levels of mycoplasma contributing to the usual co common cold viruses as well. Is it hard to know what it is? I, I had a, just a vicious, brutal cold. I never get sick at the beginning of the year. And my doctor's like, we think it's RSV, but we think it wasn't testing for it. They didn't know. Is it hard to know what's going on? Or are these all pretty easily you know, known by tests? Because mine just, they couldn't figure it out. Right. So we don't really have a commercially available viral respiratory panel test, which checks for all these viruses like we use in the ER. And when we do it in the ER, it's for older or very young or immune compromised patients that are likely going to be admitted to the hospital that we need to identify the bug. For the most part, it's very difficult, like you said, to know. And I think what's been happening with COVID is people are doing the rapid swab, you know, swabbing their nose. But since Omicron, and I've said this for the last couple of years, is we have to learn to start swabbing the back of our throats first, because what we're seeing is these particular variants, the infection starts in the back of the throat and then travels up to the nose. So you swab your nose, you're going to get a false negative. So really want to encourage people if they want to increase the yield of their rapid test, if they start feeling sick and they want to rule out COVID, swab the back of your throats first. That's the back. That, so I, I had 102 and a half fever last week and I swabbed my nose and did the Binax negative, negative. So there you go. But it seems like I. I did it all wrong. You think, doctor, by now we'd kind of have it right, but we're always learning every day. Dr. Michael Danielle, really appreciate it, doctor. Thank you. Thank you. That's interesting. Back of the throat, not the nose. All right, coming up, an FCC commissioner's bombshell claim against the Biden administration over Elon Musk and his companies. Commissioner Brendan Carr, join us next. All right, welcome back. Some rather stunning allegations from inside the Federal Communications Commission claiming a basically a coordinated federal campaign targeting Elon Musk and or his companies. Now, the FCC just upheld a 2022 decision to deny Elon Musk Starlink, which is a division of SpaceX, $886 million in federal broadband subsidies. SpaceX had appealed the original decision. One of the five FCC commissioners, Brennan Carr, is dissenting strongly. He wrote on Twitter, X, last night, quote, after Elon Musk acquired Twitter, President Biden gave federal agencies the green light to go after him. And that with this decision, quote, the FCC adds itself to the growing list of federal agencies engaging in the regulatory harassment of Elon Musk. Wow. But there is context and nuance here. The original ruling in August of 2022 was issued before Musk finalized his buyout of Twitter later that year in October. Now, in a statement about the decision, the FCC chairwoman says, quote, the agency has a responsibility to be a good steward of limited public funds meant to expand access to rural broadband, not fund applicants that fail to meet basic program requirements. Let's bring in that dissenter, and that is Commissioner Brendan Carr. Commissioner Carr, thank you for coming on. Um, 
Whatever people think of it, I thought it was brave and bold of what you did. People can disagree or, or agree with it. Uh, why did you choose to do that? Because I'm sure you're taking a lot of, uh, for lack of a better term, crap. Well, look, I think there's a very clear pattern that has emerged. If you look just at the FCC, obviously where I work, we issued this decision that clawed back a $1 billion award that we issued first to Elon Musk back in 2020. And that decision really doesn't withstand scrutiny from the law or the facts or policy. And I'm not the first to notice that it was actually the Wall Street Journal editorial board two months ago that went through and said, if you look at what the FTC is doing, the FAA, the DOJ, the Southern District of New York, even the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service launched an investigation because there were some quail eggs in a blue crab that were charred after a SpaceX launch. None of these individual decisions and the volume of them make any sense unless you refer back to last year when President Biden stood at the podium inside the White House and said that it has effectively a green light for agencies to, in the president's words, uh, look into Elon Musk. And so I think all of this really can only be explained by reference to this broader pattern that's emerging across all sorts of regulatory agencies. I think people who would question what you're saying, Commissioner Carr, would say, well, no, because number one, this decision, the FCC one, which is, has to do with low Earth orbits and Starlink, and it's a little bit wonky, was originally made before Musk bought Twitter. And two, the government is giving a lot of money to Starlink's parent, SpaceX. Yeah, well, let's take this decision on its merits at the FCC. There was an original bureau level decision in 2022, but this was the first commission level decision was not until just this week. And the decision doesn't withstand scrutiny. So what the FCC did was we awarded again $1 billion to Starlink to deliver high-speed internet service to something like 640,000 homes and businesses across a number of rural states. And what we said is that we don't think the FCC that that Starlink technology is trustworthy. But that doesn't make sense because if you look at other components of the federal government, they are entering into multi-million dollar contracts right now with Starlink for the provision of high-speed internet service. And in fact, the real loser here isn't necessarily Elon Musk. He's gonna be fine without this money, but it's those millions of Americans that were promised high-speed service because of this 2020 decision that are now left with effectively nothing. And look, if the federal government ever does come back and try to bring new high-speed service to them using fiber, it's gonna cost order of magnitude more, probably $3 billion or more. So again, this is a mm -hmm. decision that really doesn't well, make sense under the law. The, the, sorry to interrupt you, Commissioner Carr. The, the chair, uh, there's five commissioners, there's the chair, and then there's, there's commissioners. Your, the chair said that basically, uh, I'm trying to get the exact quote here, uh, not the agency has a responsibility to be a good steward of limited public funds meant to expand rural access to broadband, not fund applicants, that fail to meet basic program requirements. Did Starlink, in this case, fail to meet basic program requirements? No, not at all. The very first program requirement so that was scheduled to kick that's in not true. for that's Starlink. Inaccurate. That's right, yeah, the first program requirement wasn't scheduled to kick in until 2025. And so the FCC said, because you're not meeting a 2025 uh, build-out obligation today, in 2023, we're gonna revoke the $1 billion. Again, there's real no really no explanation for this other than the fact that this fits a broader pattern that, again, the Wall Street Journal and other have already walked through that the volume and the pace and the nature of the regulatory inquiries into Elon Musk uh, either emerged or at least accelerated uh, after his decision to purchase Twitter. 
So that, that comment about failing to meet basic program requirements, what you're saying, if I'm hearing you right, is that, yeah, there are requirements in 2025. Maybe they don't meet them now, but there's no reason to believe they won't, because I'm trying to decide if that actual statement from the head of the FCC is itself some sort of like mis or disinformation. Yeah, look, again, we have program requirements that they weren't scheduled to have to meet until 2025, and the FCC was making a prediction about whether Starlink would or would not meet that. At the end of the day, they said, Starlink is not a trustworthy technology. But again, that conclusion doesn't really make sense because at this current moment, we have components of the federal government entering into multi-million dollar contracts uh, using Starlink for very important high-speed connections. And so I think this is one where, again, you have to refer back to this broader level of regulatory harassment, uh, as the Wall Street Journal put it, to find a real explanation for what's going on here. And weren't we using or still are using Starlink in, in Ukraine's fight against Putin? Yeah, look, when it, connectivity matters for life and death, the U.S. government relies on Starlink. When it comes to connecting rural Americans, they're going to get left behind without that service. And again, I think more broadly, what this highlights is the Biden administration has, has this sort of odd need-hate relationship with Elon Musk. On the one hand, they need his technology, whether it's for electronic vehicle goals that they have or for space goals, as, as you pointed out, in Ukraine. But they don't seem yeah. to be happy about the fact that they have to rely on that technology. And so I think that's why you see these duck bites or this regulatory harassment yeah along the way. Well, we had a two million car, quote, recall today for Tesla. And by the way, certain certain Model 3s and Model Ys were removed from the $7,500 tax credit, basically effective today as well. Just interesting timing there. Brendan Carr, FCC commissioner, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Yep, thanks. All right. Coming up, what a day for your money. The Dow roaring to a record high, but if you think that's good, wait do you see what is happening overseas. The top five countries minting money in stocks with the always entertaining Mr. Tim Seymour. It's a new animation. I kind of dig it. All right. Welcome back to Last Call. If you're just joining us, a record day for stocks and hopefully your money. And we may not be done just yet. Seconds. I mean, milliseconds ago. Remember I said that the Dow's going to, the 10 years going to probably fall below 10, 4% soon. Well, about two seconds later, it did. Uh, the yield at 3.996%. 10 year yield, which hit 5% just a short time ago, a couple months ago, <laughs> is now under four futures. They're higher as well. All this comes as the Dow shoving to an all-time high, the S&P above 4,700, a stone's throw from its record, the Nasdaq soaring as well. Good day for your money. All right, time for your daily RBI. And today we're talking about this amazing global stock rally because the boom has not just been here in America. Many countries have also had big pops in their stock markets this year. You may not realize it, but you can invest in pretty much any major country in the world through ETFs, the firm MSCI and Global X have pretty much made ETFs for everything. And so we track the hottest countries for stocks in the world this year. Here they are. Our pals in Dublin, pretty happy. The Ireland ETF up 27%. Egypt up about the same, pretty much a tie. Mexico, third best, up just under 30% this year. Opa, the Greek <laughs> stock market, is that was offensive, is up 39% as well. The Grec and the best stock market of the year. Don't cry for them. It's Argentina. The ARGT country ETF is up nearly 50% this year. And with a 
controversial and bold new president making some big changes to the currency and debt. We'll see if they can keep that crown for the rest of the year. By the way, the U.S. coming in eighth best in the world if you measure the S&P 500. If you just took the NASDAQ 100, we would actually be second. U.S. doing great, but some countries doing just a little bit better. For more, let's bring in somebody put in CNBC royalty. In I the just prompt. read that. No, literally, it's I, no, in the prompter. I love that. And well, I, no, I usually write everything that goes in there. Who snuck that in? Anyway, CBC, right, I broke in. CBC I broke Royalty, founder and CEO of Seymour Asset Management, Fast Money Trader, Tim Seymour, also has a new international ETF, the IDVO. What is the IDVO? It's the Amplify International Enhanced Dividend ETF. I'm a research provider and an advisor to the strategy. And it's, it's an international ETF that picks best-of-breed balance sheets, companies that are growing their payout ratios. But it's an active strategy. It's intended to, to essentially have a total return approach. But it's picking stocks internationally in a world that has gotten pretty but interesting. But it's, it's, not, it's not a specific country. It's a specific no, approach. No, in fact, it's, it's, a, it's, it's definitely an approach. It's picking stocks for companies that are growing their dividend, their payout levels, companies that don't have to be in mm. a specific sector. It's certainly looking to invest. You know, as they say often, international investing, you can't invest in a bad neighborhood. You just talked about those countries that are outperforming. Brazil, uh, Japan, those are big parts of this ETF. Those are places that actually do have the macro to support some of the bottom up. And Talk, and, talk yeah. to us about the risk of investing internationally. And I'll tell you why. So on our things, we use a service called FactSet, and we can track it's all real right. time. When I look at the, say, the stock market, the Greek stock market priced in euros, the, the return I get is different than if I look at the Grec ETF, sure. which is priced you have currency in dollars. And so talk to us about the <clears throat> difference between buying a stock market locally in that nation versus buying a U.S.-based ETF. Well, look, if you were buying a stock market in Russia right now, you might even be you know, near all-time highs because it doesn't bring in the currency. Meanwhile, Russia is not a place I'm encouraging you to go invest. Um, what I would say is look at Japan. Uh, we know that the yen relative to the dollar has been underperforming. Mm. In, in nominal terms, it's been going higher, but it means it's been getting weaker. And that's the EWJ weaker. would be the Japan ETF, but I could also go out and find some way to just buy the Nikkei 225. So, so it's, by the way, we love rock and roll on this show. You like music. I'm gonna, there's, there's a great oh. band out of Chicago uh, called Wilco. Right? They're, no, they're no Uncle Tupelo. They are no Uncle Tupelo. And we talked about this. Jeff Twitty and Jay Farrar, Uncle Tupelo. These were guys that were in the early 90s. Um, they invented alt, the alt country. Well, still feel gone. Still feel gone. Go out and listen to it, folks, tonight. If you never heard alt country, gut the song Gun, a few others. Fantastic. Trace. But Wilco, that's one of their Sunvolt. early albums. That's Sunvolt. That's, that's Sunvolt. So, but back to Wilco, one of their early albums has a song called Impossible Germany. Oh, you yeah. know this one of the great songs in rock and off, roll. Off, they're money. legendary. I mean, they're, they're arguably Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, Yankee which Hill. is what put them on the map. Okay, so the first line of that song is "Impossible Germany, unlikely Japan," right? There so go. that's the world we live in right now. Can we believe Germany? The DAX is at all-time highs. Japan's up 26 percent this year, and it looks like the go-go late 80s into the 90s. And there's reasons for it. And after significant underperformance by international markets for over a decade, we're starting to see some of these markets break out. How, did, how was my singing, by the way? It was I mean, good. Well, I, mean, I know you're in a band, so yeah. you can do very well. But then you said Go-Go's, which got me thinking Belinda Carlisle and Circle in the Sand. So do you and then I thought about coming back full circle. Is Belinda, is Belinda Carlisle a guilty pleasure? Are you able to go out there on cable TV and say, I 
like the Go-Go's. If I mean, Circle in the Sand is on like the radio, uh, Yacht Rock, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, well, I'm Mad, not, I'm not changing the channel. The video of Mad About You, I, I think you need to go back. She's absolutely it's, stunning. There, there so, you go. All right. But one of my predictions for this year, and I do five every year, was that Germany would outperform the S and P, even, and it's not. I'm wrong. I'm, I'm wrong by a couple percent, but it is in, in euros at all time highs. And this is where I'm deciding: is my prediction correct? Because if I go in euros, I'm right. If I go on the ETF, I'm wrong. Well, you're both. But I mean, you, when you're investing in here, all news anchors, well, I can be right and wrong. Well, uh, not on this show. <laughs> on your show, well, this is your this show. Is and yes, you show. can be. Um, but, but when you invest in the U.S. as a, as a dollar-based investor in an ETF that's translated back into dollars, you care about the currency. If the, if the euro is bombing, um, your returns are going to be translated back uh, as, as the euro against the dollar, and you will be underperforming. But, but it, here's part of the argument in favor of international investing. Okay. The dollar's been on a bull market for 13 years, I would argue. Uh, I'm not telling you that the dollar, and a lot of people thought going into 23, it was going to be a weak dollar year. Dollars had a couple different moments. But really, um, since it peaked after that CPI number mm-hmm. in, in mid-October, we've had had this dynamic where the dollar has been weakening up. Ultimately, that's your tailwind for investing. That's not the only reasons it's valuations, it's dividends, it's Wilco, it's Sunvolt. I am an American aquarium drinker and I assassin down the avenue. Tim Seymour, great stuff. Thank you. All right, let's do our quicker than the ticker, all the best of the rest of the headlines. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. Goodbye, D.C. Hello, Virginia. The Washington Capitals and Wizards reaching a tentative deal to leave D.C. for Virginia. They'd move into a proposed new $2 billion entertainment complex in Alexandria. Here's Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin touting it on Squawk this morning. This will be uh, like no other sports and entertainment district in the world. I think it is absolutely fitting for it to be in the innovation corridor. OpenAI and German publisher Axel Springer teaming up. They've created a deal to provide news on ChatGPT. Users will get summaries of select news content from Axel's media brands like Politico and Business Insider. Nacho cheese, responsibly? That is a slogan behind maybe the weirdest collaboration ever between Doritos and empirical spirits for a liquor. Limited release booze will go for 65 bucks. New Zealand zoologist spotting an extremely rare green honey creeper that displays both male and female characteristics. Very cool. All right, coming up, the one, the only, Barbara Corcoran and the real estate legend is urgent advice that any potential home buyer cannot afford to miss. That is next. All right, welcome back. Time now to bring in a very special guest to wrap up the hour. Barbara Corcoran, real estate legend, entrepreneur extraordinaire, Shark Tank star, and now soon-to-be star of the Barbara In Your Pocket Patreon channel launching in January. Barbara Corcoran, welcome to Last Call. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Brian. No, it's good to see you again as well. Listen, uh, I want to first talk about real estate because we know prices, rents, ownership costs have soared. There was some Redfin data out today, take it for what it's worth, that showed that rents may be topping off or even coming down in some areas. Do you believe we may have seen the short-term peak in prices and or rents? Yes, I think we've seen the short-term and the emphasis on short-term peak in rental prices because there's been a lot of new inventory built 
And so people aren't going to be paying the same this year as they paid last for their rent. But not much. I think there's been a 3% degradation in prices. But don't count on it. You're much better off buying something now while you can. Because if you don't have a chit in the game and you continue to be a tenant and wait the market out, which many people are thinking right now they should be doing, they're dead wrong. Because the minute uh, actual interest rates actually come down just one more point. Everybody's going to jump into the market and you're going to be paying a lot more for your house. So if you have any way of getting the cash together and getting into the market and buying a house and getting out of the rental, which is tempting to keep because it's a little cheaper, don't do it. Buy yourself a house. Do, do you believe that uh, it looks like the 10-year yield could drop below 4% very soon at current rates? It was at 5%. Do you think mortgage rates have also peaked, Barbara? No, they, they have peaked. Yeah, most people believe that. You know, we're, none of us are fortune tellers, but everyone's expecting that prices on mortgages will come down to 6% and maybe even, uh, maybe even a little lower than that. Some conduits are saying about it. I don't really know. But what I do know is they will come down. And when they come down, everybody's going to hear the call and everybody's going to be out looking for a house again. You know what's amazing, Barbara, is I look at some of these areas around the country that people moved to during the pandemic, and prices in some cases literally doubled. Price per square foot, yes, maybe it was right. 400. Now they're trading at 800. Can you help us make sense of that? There's no sense, rhyme, or reason to it at all. They're just lucky people. And on top of the luck of buying a house that's appreciated so much, they were helped with 2%, 3% interest rates. But if you're one of the people thinking, gosh, is that train going to come in for me? It's never going to come again. Interest rates are never going to come down that low to 2 or 3%, 4 and maybe even 5%. But here's an interesting thing that I only discovered this last week. I looked at the average interest rate in the last 50 years in America, and it was almost 8%. And yet people relatively mm. are seeing our current interest rates as a lot of money. They're really not. They're simply average. You know, talking about luck, I know you've got your barber in your pocket Patreon channel coming out. Yes. I believe you're working on a movie about your life, which is extraordinary. How important mm -hmm. is luck in the entrepreneurial journey? It's important. I've had many lucky breaks that perhaps I didn't deserve, but I took advantage of them. When I saw the opportunity, I went right into that hole. And that's the kind of luck that you take advantage of and make hay with. Most good entrepreneurs have an inner sense of when luck is playing on their behalf and they know how to take advantage of it. So you could say, hey, I've been lucky, and I certainly have. But more than anything, I took advantage of the luck when it showed his pretty little face my way. <laughs> Timing also matters. Would you start a business today? It's the absolute best time to start a business. Don't be fooled. You know, we just came out of the pandemic. Most of the old guard, big companies aren't doing as well as they used to do. Look at who has taken advantage of the pandemic and who's gotten ahead. It's the little guy. When you're a little guy, you can outmaneuver your big guy. When you're coming out of a pandemic and there's a whole new plate of business principles, you could redefine business. You could outshine everybody else. You could hustle your way. You don't have to Check with committees and attorneys before you bring a change into the market. It's the single best time that I have seen in the last 20 years for starting a business. Wow, I think we might have buried the lead there at the end. Single best time in 20 years. Love the optimism. Barbara Corcoran, Barbara in your pocket, Patreon channel launching in January. Barbara, please do not be a stranger. Welcome back anytime. Thank you. I won't at all. Thank you so much. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.